All right, let me invite your attention to Genesis chapter 1 this morning. Genesis chapter 1, Matt Sullivan did a great job uh, last week introducing our sin problem. You know, I so appreciate Matt's transparency when he tells the story. He doesn't do it to focus on himself. Uh, Matt tells his story the way he does to help those hearing know that it's okay to be real and it's okay to admit our failures. And when we take that step, that's what leads us to, uh, to receive help and healing and, and live the full abundant life that Jesus offers. Well, this week we move from, uh, from sin to salvation. Um, by the way, those of you that have been keeping up with all the big words, bibliology, theology, Christology, pneumatology, the study of salvation is called soteriology. So that'll make you sound real smart around the water cooler tomorrow. Well, let's review um, what the Bible says about man so we can lay the foundation for the necessity of salvation. Genesis chapter 1, let's look at verses 26 and 27, and then over in chapter 2 and verse 7. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then look over in chapter 2 and verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Now, right off the bat, we see that God's word says we were created in his image. And I will just tell you from that phrase alone, there is no room for evolution in the life, in the heart, and the mind of someone who believes that the Word of God is literal and true and without error. We are not accidents. Um, We are not animals who have evolved. The Bible affirms we're made in the image of God. Now, I've said this before, but let me say again, that doesn't mean that we look like God, not physically. It means that we're made with a spirit. We have a spiritual capacity. We have, uh, if you will, a moral aptitude that enables us to know God and to obey him, to worship him. Now, clearly, uh, you can look around in your everyday life and see that doesn't mean that all men are going to obey him and worship him and, and connect with him. Man has a moral compass that gives him that ability, but you can squelch uh, that inner voice, which all of us have done. And because of that, and we'll get to this a little bit later in the message, but let me go ahead and introduce here. Because of that, because of our sin, God initiated a plan of redemption. You see it in the very beginning in Genesis As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God said what the plan of redemption would be when he said that Satan would uh, would bruise his heel, meaning the Messiah, the Savior, but he would crush his head. Now, why is that important to us? Why is that important for you to understand being made in the image of God? Well, God's plan of redemption is specifically directed to humanity. Of all that God created, as you read through the Genesis account, Genesis 1 and 2, of everything that God created, everything we know on this earth is going to be destroyed except man. All men are going to live forever. That may surprise you, but let me clarify that. All men will live forever, forever, either in heaven uh, with God in eternal joy or in hell with the destroyer, suffering anguish and, and torment that never ends. Now, if you're a believer today, uh, redemption should remind you of how special you are in God's creation. Only man benefits from redemption. No other creature, and I'm sorry if you think your dog or cat's going to heaven, no other creature is going to be redeemed. 
Only man, because redemption was provided for man. And in fact, this, this is a thought that I hope you'll carry with you from this point forward. Of all creation, God chose to redeem me. Think about that. Of all that God made, of all that he created, and, and every day he said it was good when he created man, he said very good. Of all of creation, of all of creation, God chose to redeem you. God chose to redeem me. And in fact, I want you to, I want to really ingrain that. I want you to say that. I want you to say with me, of all of creation, God chose to redeem me. Let's say that together. Of all of creation, God chose to redeem me. Hey, let's do that again with, with some great enthusiasm. Ready? Of all of creation, God chose to redeem me. Now turn to your neighbor and tell your neighbor, of all of creation, God chose to redeem you. Tell them. They need to hear it. That's an amazing thing that speaks to the specialness, the uniqueness with which God created man, men and women. Now, let's talk about why God created us. We were not created out of need. God, God doesn't need anything. He doesn't lack anything. He isn't lonely. That's not why God created us. The first thing, four things I want to tell you this morning. The first thing is, and we've already kind of alluded to this, God created man to reflect his image. As, as creatures made in God's image, we were made to be like him. We were made to connect with him. That, that brings him glory. When we're, when we're displaying the image of Christ, it brings God great glory. Unfortunately, sin has distorted the image of God in us. When we are living in sin, God's image is not seen clearly in us. But while it's not seen clearly in us because of sin, for those who are in Christ, we need to remember we are still made in his image. And through the redemption process, the image of God is being restored in us. God made us to reflect his image. Now, I need to say something here that's not popular. In fact, in our culture, it's something that is very um, divisive and very polarizing. Uh, those of you that know me know I'm not one to pick fights. I don't go looking for things in Scripture to, to say to people that are offensive. But when I come to something in the text we're looking at, I can't ignore it. Look back in Genesis 127. Genesis 127 clears up a lot of confusion in our society today. Look in Genesis 127. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. In case you're wondering, the words translated here in English, male and female, in the Hebrew mean male and female. Those distinctions were created by God. And God proclaimed them very good. We should celebrate biblical masculinity and femininity as gifts from God. And more than ever, biblical teaching on gender is in direct conflict with our society's thinking. You see, we live in a day that our culture says gender differences are socially constructed forms of oppression, not God design. And I want to say very boldly this morning, and I want to say all of us probably know someone who struggles uh, in these areas. This is not uh, a word of condemnation against them. That's not my job. We love everyone. We want everyone to come to saving faith. But I have to declare to you, based on what God's word says, that transgenderism and transsexualism are rebellion against God's purpose and order in creation. There's, there's no other way to say it. Look at the division and the harm that has been caused in our society that, that gender chaos has caused in the lives of individuals and families and, and churches and society. Why? Because man ignored and distorted God's design. 
This is how God made us. And this is how he's called us to live. Number two, God created man to bear his image. God created man to give him glory. Isaiah 43, 7, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah says this, everyone who is called by my name, I created for my glory. Now, what does it mean to give God glory? It means to give him praise, to give him honor. That's some of what we did here this morning. That's what gives your life significance, and that's why you were made. God made you to bear his image and to give him glory. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, if you don't, I said God didn't create us out of need. You may hear me saying now, well, God needs us to give him glory. No, if, if you don't give him glory, that's okay. Jesus in Luke 19, when he's making that triumphal entry into Jerusalem, all the people are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees say to Jesus, hey, you need to tell your people to be quiet, to, to hold it down. And Jesus responds to them, look, if they don't praise me, even the rocks and stones will cry out. God doesn't need us to praise him to give him glory. Think about it. God, because he's God, God could give the animals a voice. If we don't choose to give him praise and glory, God could give the animals a voice and allow them to do that. No, it's a privilege. It's an incredible privilege you and I have of giving him praise because that fulfills the purpose for which he made us. And there's nothing greater. You won't find more meaning and purpose in life than fulfilling what God has made you to do. Giving God glory gives our lives purpose and meaning and the joy that we long for in life. And before I move on from this point, let me make sure we're clear. Giving God glory is with our lives, not just with our lips. It's not just coming on a Sunday morning and, and being involved in praise and worship and feeling like you've done your due and going about your way during the week. Giving God glory is with your life. It's, it's knowing his word. It's learning to obey and honor him. It's spending time with him. It's getting to know him on a, on a deeper, more intimate level. Those are the things that give God glory. He made us to bear his image. He, he made us to give him glory. Number three, God created man for a relationship with him. And you see this all through scripture. As many times as his people disobeyed and, and rebelled, God was continually calling them back into relationship. Exodus 6, 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. He created us for relationship with him. And then fourthly, in God's creation of man, he created him with free will. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. God has created man... And he says to Adam, by the way, men, Eve was not present when this command was given, so we can't say it was the woman. The Lord, verse 16, chapter 2, the Lord commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for then the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Now, why did God place the forbidden tree in the garden? Did he place it there to tempt them? No, if God wanted to tempt them, he would have made just about every tree in the garden forbidden fruit. The Bible declares in James 1.13, God does not tempt anyone. So why did God place that tree there? Well, to be clear, God placed one forbidden tree in the, in the garden to give Adam and Eve free will. To give Adam and Eve the choice to obey him and love him. Why is that? Because obedience demonstrates love. Jesus told the disciples, if you love me, you will obey my commands. There were many trees in the garden they were free to eat from. There was only one tree that was forbidden. 
but they did eat what was forbidden, and you and I have also disobeyed the commands of a loving God. We, we can't blame our condition of sin on, on Adam and Eve. So sin enters. Well, well what is sin, and, and why is sin so serious? First and foremost, sin is a transgression of the law. Now, what, what's a transgression? When you transgress, it means you, you cross the line or you overstep a boundary. When you transgress, you exceed the limit that's been set for you. Uh, Matt's illustration last week was a great example of transgression, having that bike and being told, you can go on any of these streets, but don't go down that one street. That's a transgression when you choose to violate a boundary that's been set for you. Well, why, why does God say, don't go down that one street? Why does God say, don't from that one tree. Well, God's laws, God's commands are for our good. Unfortunately, Satan gets in our head and, and we think of God's commands in the negative. We think of, well, there are all these things I can't do and, and God is just out to rain on my party and to ruin our fun. No, God's laws were like the commands that Matt had received from his father. His laws are meant to protect us from calamity and from destruction and to ensure that our lives are filled with joy and happiness. Deuteronomy chapter six, the people are about to enter the promised land. And one of my favorite passages in scriptures, Deuteronomy six, four through nine, they're about to enter the promised land and they're receiving the commands. They've received the 10 commandments and other laws and decrees from God. And then they're told this, these commands, that are being given to you today. And by the way, the whole assembly of Israel is gathered. Men, women, children, grandparents, everybody's there. But the command, the, the word given is really given to the heads of household, to the men. These commands that you're being given today are to be upon your heart. What does that mean? They, they need to be in you and flow from you. They need to be in your life, men, as you lead your families, as the heads of your household and your clans and your tribes. These words will be upon your heart. Listen, and teach them to your children. When you sit in the house, when you walk along the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, what is he saying? Men, leaders, these commands would be so on your heart and so flow from your life that all day long you're teaching these commands to your children. They're that important. But listen down in verse 24 of that same chapter, chapter 6. He gives this explanation. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God, watch this, for our good always that he might preserve us alive as he has done to this day. What the commands are given, what? For our good always. And yet in spite of this truth, man often determines that God's way is not best. We, we look at the commands of God and we decide like Adam and Eve did in the garden, well, God can't be trusted. God is just holding back from us. So we're gonna do things our way because our way is gonna bring us more joy and more fulfillment. You know, the other thing man does with the, with the commands and the laws of God is we, we look at the commands and laws of God and we realize we violated them, but we, we, we excuse ourselves or we defend ourselves. Either by checking my behavior against the behavior of someone else or by saying, well, there are a lot of areas I haven't transgressed. Problem is, if you look in James chapter two, God says if we break one law, we're guilty of breaking all of the law. So, so here's the bottom line for us. No matter what good we have done, the totality of our lives can be expressed by one word, transgressor. 
Sin is a transgression of God's law. And, and right hand in hand with that, it's not only a transgression, but it's also coming up short of God's standard. Not only have we crossed the line into disobedience, we've also not lived up to, because of sin, we've not lived up to our purpose of glorifying God. We're not, we're not reflecting his image and bearing his image when we've sinned. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All fall short. It doesn't do any good to compare ourselves to others and declare ourselves better than someone else because we've all fallen short. Let's suppose this afternoon, I don't know what the weather's like today, but let's suppose it's sunny and nice, and this afternoon um, you decide to go with two or three friends, you decide to go on a hike. It's a new trail you've never been on before. After about three or four hours of, of hiking, you're getting pretty close to the end, but you come to this, this, this canyon. It's only 30 feet across, but it stretches each way as far as you can see, and you realize you don't have time to go around it, and you don't have time to go back, or you're going to be caught in the dark. And so the only way forward is, is to go across. It's just 30 feet. So one of your hiking partners says, oh, I can make that, and they take a run and a jump. Oh, by the way, it's 1,000 feet deep, and they make it 15 feet. Someone else says, I think I can do better than that. And they run and they jump and they make it 20 feet. And maybe another person says, well, I know I can do better than that. And they make it 28 feet. Listen, the guy or girl that makes it 28 feet can't poke fun at the one that only made it 15 and say, I'm better than him or I'm better than her because they're both in a crumpled heap at the bottom of the canyon. We can't compare ourselves to others. God's standard is perfection. And the only way an imperfect sinner can meet God's standard is through Jesus because he was a perfect God-man who takes away our sin. Sin is a transgression. Sin is falling short of God's standard. Thirdly, all sin is wicked. Now, I say that, and you probably laugh inside and think, well, pastor, I know sin is wicked. No, the key word here is all. All sin is wicked. See, you know what we like to do? We, we look at sin, especially the sin in our own lives, and we like to categorize sin or, or, or kind of rank sin. Oh, murder. Now, murder is a horrible sin. 2 Samuel 12 tells us God took the life of the child born out of the affair that David had with Bathsheba. What did he do? He had the affair, and then he murdered her husband. He paid for that. Well, that seems just. But a lie is sin. In Acts chapter 5, God took the life of Ananias and Sapphira because they lied. God removed Adam and Eve from the garden, which was a perfect world, just for eating one piece of forbidden fruit. What's the big deal? All sin is wicked. And the smallest sin, and I say that from not a theological perspective, but our human warped perspective, the smallest sin can keep you out of heaven. If you haven't repented and trusted Christ and received his payment for your sin. Sin is a transgression. Sin is a falling short. Sin is wicked. Fourthly, and most importantly, all sin has a terrible price. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. Now, what, what does that word death mean? How do we impact that word death? Sin results in three types of death. First is very obvious. It results in, in physical death. Adam and Eve were created with perfect bodies that would never have known disease, never have decayed, bodies that would have lasted for eternity. But the moment of sin 
Their bodies, along with all of creation, Paul says in Romans, begin to deteriorate after sin entered. For us, that means that, that we, our, our material body is going to decay, and some of us are further down that road than others, and when we die, our material body will be separated from our soul or our spirit. It'll be in the ground. Now, if you're a believer, when you die, your spirit is immediately in the presence of Jesus upon your physical death because your sin has been forgiven, you're enabled to be in his presence. The thief on the cross, the one who was repentant, what did Jesus say to him? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. At the moment of death, the believer is in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8 said to be away with the body from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Immediately, you're in the presence of Jesus. However, your physical body remains behind until Jesus returns. Now, the Thessalonian church really struggled with this concept. The Thessalonian church had been established after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. So they had, not, they had not been a church when all that happened. They hadn't seen all that. They had been told all that. It had been taught to them and explained to them. And, and in the process of the church being established and them being told about what was to come, they were told that Jesus was going to return. Well, several years had gone by and he had not yet returned. And some people within that body had begun to die. It's part of the process of life, but they became concerned. What about those who have died? Are they, are they not going to experience the return of Jesus? What's going to happen to them? And so Paul, in his letter to them in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, explained that those who are dead in Christ, and I love the phrase Paul uses, those who are asleep. It's a temporary state. It's not a permanent state. Those who are asleep in Christ, when the archangel calls, when the trumpet sound of God is heard, the dead will rise first. That means there's going to be a bodily, physical resurrection. If you're still here when Jesus returns, you know who you're going to see ahead of you as you ascend to meet the Lord in the air? All of your dead friends and relatives that knew Christ. They're going to be ahead of you. They'll rise first. Well, there's physical suffering and death as a result of sin, but there's a much worse faith than that. There's a second type of death that's referred to here where it says the wages of sin is death, and that is spiritual death. Spiritual death is being separated from God because of our sin. At the moment Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they begin to die physically, but at the moment they ate of the fruit, they immediately died spiritually. Their, their spirit, the part of us that is made in the image of God, that connects us with God, their spirit became separated from God. Read the Genesis account. They used to walk with God in the garden. There was deep fellowship. There was connection. But all of a sudden in Genesis 3, they eat of the fruit and you see that they are hiding from God. By the way, if you're hiding from God today, that's a ridiculous game. It's like, it's like coming to my house and playing hide and seek in my backyard. I know where all the good spots are. Okay, when you're hiding from God, you're hiding in his backyard. He knows where all the good spots are. But they hid themselves from God and ultimately God put them out of the garden never to return. They immediately died spiritually. Isaiah 59.2 says it this way, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. 
your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. See, for the person that's in, that's in sin, there's going to be an emptiness. There's going to be a gaping hole. There's going to be a, a, a void in every man or woman who is separated from their creator spiritually. Why? Because God made us for him. We were made by him for him. So apart from him, life is meaningless and hopeless. It's spiritual death. Oh, but wait. It gets even worse. Worse than physical death, worse than spiritual death in this life is, is the final or the third type of death, and that's eternal death. Spiritual death in the life to come. The final death is mentioned in Revelation 20, verse 14, where we're told the second death is the lake of fire. What's the lake of fire? Well, the lake of fire is the eternal destination of those who refuse God's offer of salvation. Eternal death means everlasting punishment. See, here's the surprise for a lot of folks. Not only are believers resurrected, uh, upon his death, an unbeliever is immediately in torment. You remember the story Luke, uh, Jesus told in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man and Lazarus and how Lazarus was immediately uh, in Abraham's bosom, which is a euphemism of saying in the presence of Jesus. But the rich man, immediately upon his death, he was in torment, but it doesn't end there. Just like believers, unbelievers who have physically died are also going to experience a bodily resurrection. John 4, 29, Jesus said, speaking of all of those who are in the tomb, that it, the, it, it, all who hear his voice, the voice of the archangel, will come out. All those who are dead will come out. Some will be raised to life, he says. Some will be raised to condemnation. So even the unbeliever... Unlike believers who are resurrected to eternal joy, unbelievers are resurrected to eternal suffering. And at the moment of their physical death, they will never have the opportunity to change their destiny. They're going to suffer, and, and then at the judgment, they'll be sent to the lake of fire where they will, where they will suffer forever. And you may have heard some... some unbiblical teaching on this, they're not eventually going to die. They're not eventually going to cease to suffer. They will always be in physical and spiritual torment forever and ever. Don't you feel blessed that you came to church today to hear this word? Now, you know, we need to hear this word even as believers. It's not pleasant to think about or talk about, but we need to hear that sin is serious in the sight of God. And we need to when we hear that, think about people who are going to experience eternal death for their sin, and it's absolutely unnecessary. The wages of sin is death, but what's the second half of that verse say? The gift of God is what? Eternal life. It's absolutely unnecessary for anyone to spend eternity in physical and spiritual torment. Sin brought death to the human race. It affected the entire universe. But what do we know? We know that the sacrifice of Jesus brings life. In fact, three weeks ago, hopefully you remember that we looked at biblical teaching of Jesus as Savior. He was the perfect man. 
He had to be a man to die for men. He had to be one who was perfect, who completely fulfilled God's law in order to die for those of us who transgress God's law. But also, he was not only the perfect, he was not only fully man, he was also fully God. Why? Because the sacrifice Jesus made had to have infinite values. He was on the cross. He died for the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future. God's plan for our salvation was to send a redeemer. And Jesus, that redeemer, was sent for all men. Why? Because God's heart, 2 Peter 3, 9, God's heart is not for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But not all are going to come to repentance. Not, not all are going to be saved. Well, how, how are we saved? How do we experience the forgiveness of sin and, and freedom from the power of sin and, and a future home in heaven free from the presence of sin? Tyler read it a few moments ago. Let's look at it again. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Paul makes it very clear. By grace, that's, that's God giving us what we don't deserve, being gracious. By grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You wouldn't need God if you could earn it on your own. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. By the way, a gift has to be received to have value. Someone gives you a, a present this Christmas and it's all wrapped up real nice and you thank them for it and you set it under the tree and Christmas is over and you're cleaning and putting Christmas stuff away and you just stick that wrapped up box in a closet somewhere. It hasn't done you any good, has it? You've got to receive the gift. It is the gift of God, look, not a result of works that no one may boast. It's by grace. Through faith. Faith in what? Faith in the work Christ has done. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's faith in Jesus. What is, what is that? Well, faith that his death on the cross was enough to cover your sin. It doesn't matter what you've done or how often you've sinned. The death on the cross was enough. Faith that he was resurrected. And overcame sin, death, and the grave. Paul said in Ephesians, excuse me, in Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, that's your faith in him, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. Why is that important? Because apart from the resurrection, his death didn't do any good. He was resurrected through the power of God, showing he could overcome sin and death in the grave. And faith that he's going to come again. He's going to come again. And when he comes, he's going to receive us unto himself and take us to a future home in heaven that is free from the presence of sin. That's the kind of faith Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 2. Now, what happens when you enter into relationship with God by having faith in what Christ has done and paying for your sin and having faith in what Christ is going to do in your life as a believer. What happens? Let me just give you three words this morning. There are a lot of words around salvation, propitiation, atonement. I want to just give you three words this morning that I think are pretty simple to remember that describe what happens when we're saved. And the first word is the word justification. Justification means that we are saved from the penalty of sin. This happened in the past when Christ died and took our sins on him and died for us. Romans 8.1, Paul said, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, let's just let's pause here and take a breath. There's no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, at our very best, when we are being as righteous as we know how to be, when, when we are committing the best acts, we know how to commit all those things, Isaiah says, and the eyes of God are like filthy rags. We can never be good enough. We can never be righteous enough. But when we're in Christ, God sees us as completely righteous. And that, that's a foreign thought to some of you here this morning. How could God see me as righteous? Does he not know what I've done? When you're in Christ, you're seen as completely righteous. Why? Because you have been justified. Someone said it this way to remember the word justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's how God sees us when we're in Christ. That's why the writer of Hebrews says we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. There's no need to cower or hide from God because God looks at us as people, his people, who are righteous. Here's an interesting word picture for you from the, uh, from the New Testament. When, when a bridegroom was preparing for a wedding and a bride was preparing for a wedding, it was the bridegroom's responsibility to prepare her wedding garment. She concentrated on her dowry of jewelry and she left the selection and, and work on the bridal ground to the groom. Now, some of you women are having horrified thoughts right now. You can't imagine doing something like that. But on the wedding day, the, the groom would wear the, the, the garment he had prepared. He would wear that outer cloak and then he would take that and he would place it over his bride and it signified that she's coming into his care and his keeping. But here's what I want you to understand. Whatever the bride wore before that moment is insignificant because at that moment, this beautiful garment prepared by the groom now covers up everything she had been wearing. So what she had previously worn is no longer seen. And that's a perfect picture of us being in the righteousness of Christ. When we come to Christ, what were we? We were unrighteous. But that unrighteousness when we come to Christ is no longer seen because we are covered in his righteousness. The filthiness of our sin is completely covered in the righteousness of Christ. We're justified. That makes us right with God. It happens at the moment you receive Christ. The second part of salvation is the process that we call sanctification. That's where we're saved from the power of sin. Justification happened in the past. Sanctification is a present reality. What is it? It's the Holy Spirit who indwells all of us as believers, empowering us to yield to Christ instead of sin so that more and more we're reflecting the image of God. We can't say the devil made me do it once we've come to Christ because Satan no longer has power over you if you've surrendered your life to Christ. And so sanctification is the process where the Spirit is working in us, making us more and more like Christ, but unlike justification where we have no part in that, in sanctification we have a part. Paul in Philippians 2 and verse 12 said, hey, you need to, talking to believers, you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now listen, he doesn't say work for. We don't work for our salvation. We can't. 
We can't be good enough. We can't do good enough. We can't be righteous enough. He says, work out your salvation. That's a whole different concept, a whole different idea. What does it mean? It means you're putting in the effort to make sure your salvation is pervading everything about you and even flowing from you that you're seen as a person who's becoming more and more like Christ. As you understand your salvation, as you work it out in your life, that's the process of sanctification when you recognize, hey, sin no longer has power over me. Satan can't cause me to do anything. I'm completely yielded to Christ when I choose to be. And the Holy Spirit is able to work in me and to make me more and more like Christ. And, and let me just insert here real quick. Sometimes people wonder, and I especially have this happen when, when parents come and talk to me about their adult children who are living godless lives, and they wonder, well, I wonder, I wonder if Johnny's really saved. And I'll often hear a mom say, well, I, I know he's saved. I was there when he was eight years old, and, and I heard him pray. It's not just about the words we pray, is it? It's not just about what we say. And my response to that is often this simple phrase. You know justification has occurred when you see sanctification occurring. If a person's not becoming more and more like Christ, if they're living a godless life, justification probably didn't ever occur. When we're justified, the process of sanctification begins. And then finally, the, the final the final part of our salvation is future, it's, it's glorification. The day is gonna come and we are saved from the presence of sin. We no longer have to deal with the struggle of our two natures because we're in heaven, we're with the Lord, we're in his presence. We have a glorified body, a glorified nature. We're saved from the presence of sin. Paul said in Romans eight, we know all of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Because all of creation began a process of decay when sin entered. All of, entered, all of creation is groaning, and not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What is he saying? Man, we long for the day when we no longer have to struggle with sin. We no longer have to struggle with that part of us, that battle that's continually going on inside of us, that part of us that, that wants to do right, that keeps doing evil. We, we don't have to struggle with that anymore because in glorification, we've been justified, we've been sanctified, we're becoming more and more like Christ, but all of a sudden we're going to be like Christ because we're going to be glorified and in his presence. Well, I'm kind of into overtime here, so let me, let me say this. You're here this morning, not because you got up and it was a good morning and the kids were doing well and you were able to get everybody together. That's not why you're here this morning. You're here this morning because the Spirit of God drew you to this place for one of two reasons. I don't believe that everybody that attends our church knows the Lord. I always believe anytime we gather together that there are some there who've not received the gift of salvation. They've not received forgiveness of sin and, and the gift that Christ paid for on the cross. You may be here this morning because you needed to hear very clearly 
where you stand with God and very clearly your need to trust Christ. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed once for man to die. That's talking about the physical death. It's appointed once for man to die, and after this comes the judgment. Once you have died, if you die apart from Christ, your judgment is that you spend eternity in a place called hell, in incredible physical torment, but worse than that, in spiritual torment because you are separated from your God and you realize you will never again be able to have that connection. Some of you here this morning, it may just be a handful in this room, but some of you here this morning, and that describes the state of your life. And God brought you here to hear this message to give you another opportunity to respond to the gospel. In just a few minutes, we're going we're gonna to bow and we're going to pray. And while that is happening, some of our pastors who are here in this room will be right down here toward the front, off to the side. You can slip out at any time while our heads are bowed, while we're praying, when we, when we sing a song of response, you can slip out at any time. And come and ask them how you can have that relationship with Christ. Many of you here this morning already know Christ. You, you've received that gift. You need to be reminded of what God has done for you and why he calls you, why he has the right to call you to obedience. And you, like me, also need to be reminded of what was at stake in your life before you came to Christ and, and of the recognition that there are many people that you know, friends or neighbors or, or coworkers, who are in a desperate situation because they haven't trusted Christ. And that should cause us to really stop and think about the blessing we have and the calling we have to share the blessing of salvation with others.